We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode number 41 of Lion Legacy, and Ross, we got to kick off hearing about your trip to Penn State for Blue White Weekends. Jealous that you went there, so tell us a little bit about your experience. It's been long enough that I had to figure out when I was there before that, which is a shame, but pandemic and all. So yeah, with the family and I were up at Blue White Weekend, which was awesome. First time there. And I, by the way, I did figure out it was my first time there since 2017, almost five years, which is uh, crazy, crazy and terrible at the same time. But it was a lot of fun. We were there with some friends. Shout out Ellen Brown and family. Shout out Julie Hertz and family. Um, And uh, yeah, it was just great to be back. The weather was nice. It was great to be back in Beaver Stadium. It was great to have the kids there. Yeah. So Evan was there when he was little, not old enough to remember. Julia, first first, first time there that she can remember. But they loved it. They were like, oh, this is great. So maybe there is still a shot to convince them to, to be students there someday. But again, I don't want that's a delicate balance. Yeah, it was just nice to be there. Nice to be back on campus. Nice to walk around. The uh, The game was fun. I don't know. I didn't see the attendance, was it? Like, but they had a ton of people there. And uh, it was cool. And uh, yeah, Evan loved being in the stadium. I was trying to explain to him that it was a bit bigger than an NFL stadium. And uh, oh yeah, he was like, oh, it's not that big when, when we were approaching, walking up. And then he got in and it, I was watching him as we came through the concourse and into the actual stadium and his eyes lit up and he's like, oh, this is pretty big. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But yeah, it was just, like I said, it was just nice to be back up there. It was, I, I had a blast. It was really nice to be there. So always a special time. It's always a special place to go back. So I'm glad yep. you had a chance to to get back there. Yes, and you sir. also had a, you also had a chance to visit our friends at, at Lions Pride as well. I imagine you, you I did. stocked up. I did shout out Danielle and and Steve from Lions Pride. I, I, I stopped in there. We made a special trip over there. And I, it was nice to meet them in person or IRL in real life, as the kids say. <laughs> so, yeah. So shout out Danielle and Steve. It was a pleasure meeting you. And we got some nice gear. I got myself a new hat. My hat was a uh, my nice. Navy. My Navy hat was a little bit faded. So I got a new hat and uh, we got some stuff for the kids and got some stuff for, for my nephew and another new nephew. It was good. And, and we stocked up for sure. Awesome. That's great. And as we, we talk about our, our guest that we had on, he's a good childhood friend of yours, right? Or, yeah. Of course, Ben Stater. Yeah, that's right. So a nice segue. Our guest this week was David Hua, who, in addition to being a Penn Stater, was also an old friend of mine. We went to high school together. We know each other going back to probably fourth or fifth grade. This is somebody who I know for probably 30 years. And although we've lost touch in recent years, it was nice to reconnect and um, definitely somebody that we, that I told Jared for a while, we needed to get on the show here. And I won't, like I say, I won't give it all away, but he is, uh, he's out in California, the CEO of um, a company called Meadow, which is in the cannabis industry. So a little bit outside of the norm for us, Jared, he gives us a lot of good nuggets of information about what, what his company's doing, his background. He's been in startups for years and years, and, and he's zig- zigged and zagged a little bit. We get into all that. He, he waxes poetic, if you will, about his time at Penn State. 
And it was just a really, number one for me, nice to see him after all these years and nice to hear what he's got to say. And he's just a sharp dude. He's just done a lot of great things. He's leading a company and it's just nice to see his success. Yeah, completely agree. You could just see the the thought process of, you know, the interview and his answers really well thought out. For sure. And just, yeah, true a true leader in a burgeoning industry. And with that said, we're going to go light it up with David Hua. All right, let's welcome David Hua, a 2004 graduate with a degree in finance and international business. And let me add a smart one with a Penn State Schreier's Honors College graduate degree. During his time at Penn State, he was a member of Delta Sigma Phi, the Asian Awareness Association, and one of those guys that walked backwards giving Penn State tours. Of course, I'm referring to line ambassadors. David is now the CEO and co-founder of Meadow, a software company built from the ground up from California cannabis and Y Combinator's first startup to operate in the cannabis space. Thanks for joining us on Lion Legacy. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I got to say, is it okay if uh, I call you Hua? Because Ross always calls you that. And it just seems overly formal to call you David. Yeah, everyone calls me Hua. All right. Perfect. Perfect. So you and Ross obviously have some history dating back to elementary school. Take us back a little bit to that time. I know it was a while ago. (laughs) Share any stories with my co-host, please. I've probably spent more Christmases with Ross than pretty much any of of my friends. (laughs) And there's a reason for that. Now, who and I go back about, what, 30 years, right? Yeah, a long time. Yeah, but but keep going. The Christmases, go ahead. Yeah, so we have a a Chinese restaurant in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. Started in 1982 with my parents and their sisters and my grandmother. So it's a whole family affair. And we work on Christmas. And we also hang out with all my Jewish friends coming through and sharing their Christmas with us. It's uh, a big day. Go, it's a big Absolutely. day before they go over to uh, the movie theater. Yeah. Yeah. We used to do it the other way around, though. We would go to the movies first and then go to the Golden Dragon for dinner. We'll certainly we'll plug. The, thank you for plugging the restaurant. I was going to get to that later, but we hit it early. I well, hope they I, were good just, tippers. It, it just what's co- they're great tippers. I. I just remember like always like I would stay there and have a, a long conversation. I'm like, I gotta go back to work, but it was always <laughs> great. Your parents were always so nice. Your sister, you guys came in and we'd be catching up on anything that's from happening through the whole spectrum of school. And then that's right. Cause we've been through everything, middle school track team yeah. honor. We were pretty much on the honors track the entire time. We, we had a lot of classes together and then line ambassadors, Penn state, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ross is bit, Ross is like consistent, solid dude from every stage that you could possibly have gone through. It's like that's Ross. Just he has, he has a good essence to him. Well, thank yeah. you. I appreciate the kind words, and you've always been you've always been quite the go getter. And even though we've we've lost touch a bit in recent years, but it's so nice to see your face. I know for the listener, we just do audio, but we're on our platform here and I can see who, so it's very nice to have you and, and have a chance to, to catch up here. I don't think uh, you had great. long hair though in Penn state. Did you? No, this is a California thing. When I moved out in like <laughs> 2007. Yeah. Pandemic Hua, like the hair was like down to like my chest, like down oh, here. Wow. Uh, I actually got cut like not too long ago, but yeah, long hair, California. 
Yeah, we're, we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to about what you're doing now. We're going to get into Meadow and then we're going to work our way backwards. So we certainly know about cannabis. Cannabis, is, is, that's the industry you're in. And it's maybe it's controversial at times, but it, it's out there. It's prevalent. It seems to always be in the news and it's a front of mind for the regulators and, and the lawmakers. So Meadow is a software company in the cannabis industry. Tell us about it. What does it mean? What does the company do? What's it all about? Yeah, so we started in 2014. We build software for the cannabis industry. Our goal is to build the best, best in class. We are headquartered in San Francisco uh, in um, the Mission Soma area. It's also the birthplace of medical cannabis. In 96, Prop 215 was passed from Demis Perone, and that kicked off medical cannabis for the entire country at that point. But we started in 2014, and the genesis of the idea came through, I was at Oaksterdam University in the East Bay, and my wife is in culinary, so we were thinking about making some edibles. I went over there to learn how to do it. Turns out I meet a couple of dispensary owners, David and Debbie, and I realized they were doing everything by paper and by hand. And in 2014, I was already past a couple other startups, realized that this could be a probably is a better way. So we basically took that kernel of idea. And one of the problems I had as a patient in California at the time was finding reliable cannabis. The one place I did get it reliably was at a dispensary called Vapor Room run by Martin Olive. He's just this OG in the space, been around for a long time. Uh, really amazing dispensary in the lower hay, hand carved wood, Jeremy Fish art, just barrels of weed where you go in and you smell it. Everyone's having a great time. And unfortunately, it was shut down um, after they got raided because of some tax issue. Uh, so they turned to delivery. And uh, so we, I went to Martin and said, hey, dude, let's build some software so people can get cannabis reliably. You guys have great cannabis. Let's do that. So we facilitated this B2C model at the time where people with medical cannabis cards could order effectively. And... A lot of that's evolved through the years. That was eight, almost eight years ago. Uh, now we're pretty much a SaaS solution for operators. We run their point of sale, their e-commerce, their inventory, analytics, marketing, everything. Like, it, I think the, the way I look at it, a lot of these guys are like small, medium-sized businesses. And having grown up in my own sort of family business, technology is an amazing way to help scale and impact and leverage. And we're pretty much building those pickaxes and shovels for these dispensaries so that they can compete because 1,200 regulations or 1,200 pages of regulations is pretty deep to, to wade through. Is that why you need a specific SaaS solution as opposed to uh, other SaaS platforms that exist for other B2C businesses? Yeah. Is it because of the yeah. regulations? Yeah, this is, the, this is like the end of prohibition. And in a lot of ways, these laws are being written and rewritten as we speak or have been over the last decade or so. And when we look at the, the California laws, they're really complex. There's different parts of the supply chain you need to go through. Every gram of cannabis is tracked from when it's grown in the ground to when it's smoked. And you also have a four-tier tax structure where your taxes and audit, uh, your taxes need to be accounted for accurately uh, as you bring in product, as you sell it in different jurisdictions. Yeah, it's insanely complex to, 
to just sell weed. I didn't realize. I mean, I knew it was a, a heavily regulated industry, but I didn't realize mm. the the tracking that you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. we track everything. Uh, wow. It's mandated. It's just part wow. of the laws. And what was that like in in the beginning? And maybe even today, I imagine you're quite involved with lobbying and legislation and trying to you know, bring thought leadership to the industry in, in that regard? Yeah. What, what's interesting is we came at a time where Prop 215 um, knew, knew was that there was going to be this eventuality of moving into legalization. In, in 2014, Colorado was going legal at the time. And there was this, oh, California is going to go completely adult use. It's going to happen. And so there was this onboarding or transition period that we all had to navigate through while the laws were literally being written. Uh, and we would come together, provide feedback. And this is this grand experiment of theoretical, this is how you should do it, to like reality of what it's like to actually operate in one of the world's largest markets with the already a robust and healthy medical system. And now you're trying, you're changing all the rules simultaneously while still trying to gain ground and, you know, and sell. And oftentimes what we see is there's a disconnect between the lawmakers, the regulators, and the operators. And Meadow, we build software, but you know we're really impassioned about California cannabis in general, or just cannabis, but how it should be regulated. So it's not being wasteful. It's not being inefficient. It's actually realizing the potential what it is. And so we try to do our best in lobbying or advocating for various changes that may help the industry survive another day or be a little bit more efficient than they were previously. Out of curiosity, we're going back. I'm sure, like you said, the laws are being written over the last eight years or so. How much have you learned as far as the regulations go in, in that time? I'm sure you've learned a ton, but do you feel like, like, are you one of the main sources of knowledge there? Are you surrounding your people, uh, surrounding yourself with people that are just like so ingrained that they're almost like like an encyclopedia of regulation? Both. If you want to play the game, you need to learn the rules. Sure. And if you want to uh, change the game, you need to know who can rewrite the rules and how to advocate from a ground level to ultimately the governor signing it. And so... I would have never thought in a million years I'd be so entrenched in government, policy, regulations, bills, any of this stuff. I think cannabis is pretty much compliance in a lot of ways because it's still a Schedule 1, which is crazy. And there's a lot of laws being written at a state level that everyone's experimenting with. But what's crazy is because we have so many... Uh, individual states have legalized without federal oversight or federal laws. Everyone's run a little bit differently. So we're all cross like learning from each other. And I imagine this is what prohibition, like alcohol prohibition was like ending and all these craft breweries were probably popping up and eventually they had to consolidate. And I just think we're seeing that at a much accelerated rate because of the way information moves nowadays and how quickly things change especially with technology. And so I think Meadow is in this really interesting spot where cannabis at large is very archaic. We don't have access to banking. It's still a federal one or schedule one yep. substance. There are people in jail still for it. 
you can pay your taxes, they'll accept it, but they won't give you a tax break on 280E, which is an ability for a business to write off business expenses. But if you're working with a Schedule 1, you can't do any of that. So you're already at a disadvantage of 20, 30% on your net because of laws like this. So you're trying to play a game that is very modern with like really archaic laws that's withhold, like not allowing you to move forward. Meanwhile, the illicit market is just there. It's just running. So mm-hmm. you got to compete against that. And I suspect it's kind of, you know, if you look back at prohibition again, it's like, yeah, you were ever, you know, buying moonshine, but you're not buying moonshine now. Like eventually that all goes away. So right. how do you roll it up effectively? And I think the biggest point that we don't talk about often or more is how to help the communities who've been ravaged by the war on drugs. Because I know we're talking about cannabis, but we also have decades and decades of jailing of people of color, lots of discrimination. It's communities being ravaged from it, the, the whole private prison system. It's kind of nuts when you really peel back the layers on why this plant has been demonized and and this heavy stigma around it because of the, you know, dare kids and say no to drugs and all this other stuff. So, yeah, I, I think there's a strong belief for, on our side on what it's like to be an operator, but also a consumer and a patient and try to, to map that up to a legislator that may not smoke, but knows it's important for people or maybe does know someone that has cancer and knows it's been good, but doesn't know how it's like to actually sell it and run an inventory room. Those are the things we, we try to paint a, a more clear picture for them. Surround ourselves with people that also know and have a unique perspective. And then collectively, we can see a, a broader picture of what's happening. Excellent. And now that's a good segue into the next item, which is regarding surrounding yourself with people related to Meadows organization of the, an annual industry retreat called Meadowlands which I understand is designed to build a more united, collaborative, and equitable community in California and beyond. You certainly have put yourself in a position to be an industry leader. Tell us more about Meadowlands and what's that, what that's all about. Yeah, it's like summer camp for cannabis. It's like <laughs> camp cannabis. You there know you how go. growing up, I was actually working at the restaurant, but a bunch of friends that would go to summer camp. I don't know if you guys sure. went to summer camp. Yep. Uh, yep. But I didn't get that growing up. So this is like a take on... You're in the Mendocino Redwoods on a hundred acre property with 500 people that all love weed and all parts of the different supply chain, whether plant touching or non. We have a bunch of panels and sharing knowledge. We have yoga, massages, dance parties, silent disco. It's really well catered. We have cooking demos. We have night hikes. It's like this magical experience that blends like business conference with Burning Man and nature, <laughs> summer camp, like retreat style. I love it. You certainly Very made cool. up for the years that you didn't go to summer camp. So I like it. You're, yeah, you're, it's great. You created your, your own summer camp, right? For, yeah, for grownups. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Very cool. It's, it's, it's a wonderful backdrop for, for cannabis. Well, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but... Where do you see this industry going? It's so dynamic and also complex, but where do you see this going in the next few years? Where do you want it to go? Give us a little bit of your expertise insights there. 
I, I think another way of looking at it is where do you see alcohol and pharmaceuticals and tobacco, how much access you have? Ideally, cannabis is accessible as that. I think that's one big area I'd like to see it go to where, sure, you have the laws and the regulations and the things that help it be safe from a public health perspective, but as a human, as a right, you're able to get what you need whenever you want, whether from a doctor, whether uh, at a bar or a consumption lounge, or just a friend just rolling up something and handing it to you. I think the that's where I see an access. In terms of but we can be our own thing, that's what I'm hoping it we don't be alcohol. We don't be like pharmaceutical. We are cannabis. And what does that mean? I think there's an opportunity because it's ag, we can be way more diligent on how we help our farmers. If you look at like agriculture today, they're kind of like big industrial growth complexes. In California, we're really fortunate that we have small growers and CSA boxes and like all of this like fresh produce uh, on a small scale where these farmers can really produce a bunch of different things and support themselves. I love cannabis to be a crop for that, just like how you can do wine. Like you should allow smaller operators to grow, contribute, sell, you know, how they want and have unique varietals that way. When you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking, how do you change the perceptions here? So much of it is a, a perception change, right? You talk about prohibition. Yeah. How do you get people to think differently? about cannabis because when we grew up all of us this was like a stay away from it right stay far away from it and now things are starting to change but how do you get society to think differently yeah we were growing up it wasn't allowed but we still did it like for me alcohol never treated me well so cannabis was i remember there's you know fraternity that i went to not my own but others where i probably hit like a 10 foot bong. I remember it was awesome. I was like, there's other people here that love weed too. And in Penn state is a big alcohol college, but look, it is also there's cannabis and the, the connections I made there while, while smoking or just doing other activities made me think that whatever we were being told wasn't necessarily true. And I think that stigma, it just takes time. I think the cat's out of the bag though, in a lot of ways, if you look at it, pandemic probably sealed the deal in my mind when you had essential cannabis where you are essential workers you were as essential as uh, a healthcare worker you had the same rights to keep open and serve your cut your patients or your customers consumption of cannabis went through the roof alcohol came down a bit and a lot of people are trying to deal with stress and all the things that are happening mm -hmm. i don't i think Taking it away at this point is impossible, but changing people's minds, I really think, I think it's talks, it's with this stuff, like continue talking about it, normalizing it and realizing it's not as big of a deal as everyone thinks it is. It's a plant it is here thousands, tens of thousands of years before us. Like just because some dude said, this is bad for you. Do we have to believe that? Can you try it? Can do you, may it benefit somebody else? Does it matter if it doesn't benefit me, but help someone else and doesn't cause any issues? Let it go. And I think cannabis has that way of, if we do it right, can really support a lot of different avenues. It is has enough of a medical component because of our endocannabinoid system, whereas all these cannabinoids 
can affect you differently, whether it's THCA, THCV, CBN, all of those different cannabinoids can help you with appetite suppression or nausea. If you look at cancer patients, this really helps them through chemo because of the nausea and the recovery. And, and, and if you look at relapse usually is caused from not going through with the whole chemo. But with cannabis, boom, you can get through this journey and hopefully come out healthy on the other side. Then you have, and because of that, you also have extraction, oils, vaping. You can actually extract this cannabis, infuse it into edibles, into beverages. Uh, you can also smoke it. There's so many of these modalities that we, and then you can, you know, take away any of the psychoactive properties and go industrial and say, hey, hemp. Before there was plastic and before you had all this like synthetic material, it was all about hemp. It's one of the strongest fibers in the world. It's used for pretty much practically everything. You can even eat hemp seeds. All this stuff is, is there too. So I think we're just starting to learn. And because it's been scheduled as illicit drug, we haven't had the research to back it. But now that we're uh, moving forward, either at a state level, you're seeing colleges study it. In, in California, I think we just gave out $50 million to universities and say, hey, here's a grant study it. You could do what varietals are happening here or how strains are affecting you or, hey, tell me about you know, how this has impacted different communities. Like, here's money. And it's funded by the state. Imagine, dude, if like, we were in college and we can go study cannabis because like the governor said, hey, here's $2 million and have some fun with it. Bring out some <laughs> learning. That would have been dope. <laughs> right? For 20 years too late, right? No, I think or too early. Right? Let's yeah. go get that for Penn State. I'd be so happy yeah. about that. California is already charging. I'm like, how do I help Penn State along in this this journey? Well, I love it. The great insights. It'd be certainly interesting to see where the industry goes, and you'll be a pivotal player. It takes a village, man. Yeah, absolutely. It takes a village. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk more about you, and we're going to work our way backwards real quick through your resume. Before Meadow, you were with a few other startups. You were with one called Sincerely, which is, hopefully I get all this right, mobile photo and postcard app. You worked for Health Central, which was a health blogger network, and Genesis Interactive, which is a gaming company. And I also cannot forget your time, which this is near and dear to my heart, the time that you spent as the manager slash producer slash booking agent for our friends in the musical band Downtown Harvest. And a shout out, by the way, to our old buddy, Frank Ewing, also a Penn Stater, which I have to catch up with Frank. I've also not spoken with him in a while. But all of that to say, Hua, looking back on your earlier days of your career, what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned working for those companies and projects and how you helped them get off the ground? What'd you take with you from those days? Yeah, okay. Funny story. Sincerely is where I met my co-founders where I started Meadow. All Penn Staters as There you well. go. So our, our founding team are all Penn Staters, different years, younger than me. Sincerely was also started by Matt Brezina and Brian Kennedy. Matt is also a Penn State alumni. And another funny story is I met him when I was a freshman in Shriers, where one of our mutual friends asked me to help write signs to help this guy run for class VP and president. And Matt Brezina was that guy. I never met the dude, but he was in Shriers. And so... What I'd love for you to take about that story is you never know who you're going to meet and how that's going to impact the rest of your life. And Penn State and being there and 
meeting someone, just saying hi to them and then say, and saying yes to help out just because they needed help to help someone run for whatever resulted into a marriage of myself and these, my co-founders because we all worked at Sincerely. And when I moved out to San Francisco in 2007, I was looking for other Penn Staters and Matt was one of them where I got introduced and here it goes. So I think the that first lesson is really around like being open to serendipity and being open to meeting people without this transaction or whatever, but like genuinely meeting people, liking them and helping, helping one another. And I think a lot, I think Penn State, especially like our alumni is the best because there's one in every nine people or whatever. And quite frankly, people are like, why are you guys are, like so into Penn State? Just, it's Happy Valley, man. Like. Been there? <laughs> no, I feel okay. like that goes. That, that should go on a T-shirt, right, dude? It's Happy Valley, man. <laughs> I love it. Power of Penn State. The power of Penn State. Health Central. Health Central taught me about market size, and how health is about seventeen percent of all GDP, and how you can make a product and serve and do well in just a huge market. So if you can build something with a big TAM that even if you get a, a small piece of it, you're going to be great. And for Health Central, it acquired another company I was at called Wellsphere. And so that's how I got into Health Central. But Wellsphere was started as a, a blogger network with around all these different communities in, in health and wellness. And so that really taught me really around how many different communities there really are and how, pe how deep people can get around uh, chronic illness, especially. Because uh, eventually the ultramarathoning communities, IVF communities, diabetes, depression, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, you name it. I had a, a wide view of how much health uh, we deal with on a, a regular basis because of all these conditions and things that people are doing. Genesis Interactive, it was called Got Game. That was my first introduction to starting a company with Wynn, who I met at uh, Citigroup. He was in my analyst class and he was like, look, I'm starting a company. Do you want to come with me and start it in San Francisco? It's in gaming. And so for me, I was like, yes. And that's what taught me there is you just got to take chance, take your chances, say yes. You might not have everything, but just sometimes you just got to make the move. And at the time I wasn't convinced New York was a place for me and finance was a place for me. So that, that was ironically Genesis Interactive, the start of it. And then Downtown Harvest, that taught me, I think you just have a lot, you do it for the passion, you do it for the love. Uh, that was always about that. It's, I love these guys. I love this music. I love the energy. And if, even if it doesn't make money, it doesn't matter. There's, you do it for the love of it. And I'm so fond, I'm so grateful for those memories because you can just, it was such a vibe before all this that we're seeing today. I, I, it was awesome. And the music's great. Love the band, man. <laughs> if there are listeners out there that have not discovered Downtown Harvest, you are a fortunate one. Go check it out. That's right. Yeah, they are not, a, they have disbanded. But again, I was, you beat me to the plug. I was going to say, go check it out. On They're all over Apple Music, all that. Check it, Downtown Harvest, they put out a few albums, good stuff. I want to touch on you. You mentioned Citigroup, and obviously you spent some time there on Wall Street. Imagine corporate world wasn't for you in the in the long run. But 
I also imagine there were some key takeaways from that experience as well. Yeah, so I arrived at Citigroup at Penn State primarily through the investment, the Penn State Investment Association, PSIA. Uh, so I was one of the a member there. And I don't know if you remember, but Penn State, the, the career paths are, they're some pretty like defined ones. You go General Electric, Accenture, PwC, and Wall Street at the time was still pretty nascent for us. So PSIA was this group that we, we created to essentially bring more of that talent into New York. So I got an internship at Merrill Lynch um, at my junior year and um, got into New York, loved New York, it was awesome, and then applied for a bunch of finance positions, which was Citigroup, who there was another guy that was a Penn Stater that brought us in, into the analyst program. So you could see like a theme here, Penn Staters help other Penn Staters. There's a very big pay it forward mentality, but also let's bring more people over because strength in numbers, let's do this. So yeah, Citigroup, I was brought there and was in a foreign exchange and Latin American equities, two different rotations, but really great. And that gave me perspective of what capital markets is and how it functions and all the different uh, variables with equities and, and, and debt. I think ultimately, I think once I passed all the series tests and I did a level one CFA and ultimately just wasn't like satisfied with what I was doing, no knock on the industry itself. I just didn't feel like I was fulfilled. I was looking at these companies. I was working with different groups, but I didn't feel like I was building anything. And I think ultimately that's where I had that itch to go with Wynn to, to San Francisco. One of the themes that we've gotten here is your hustle, right? You're a hustler, right? You're a go-getter. It's led to all of these great accomplishments um, that you've had throughout your, the course of your career. So you beat me to it with earlier uh, in the intro, but I was going to tell the listener at this point that knowing you for as long as I do, you know, we, we're going to mention the Golden Dragon. Again, you mentioned your family started the Golden Dragon Chinese restaurant in Plymouth Meeting PA some 40 years ago. You worked there as a young adult, probably hanging around the restaurant as a kid, all of that with your parents, your sister, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins. Let's just go back to that. Was there some of that hustle mentality? Did that go back to as a kid and seeing your parents as entrepreneurs and just being around the restaurant? Is that something that was ingrained in you from a young age? Yeah, for sure. I think it's probably more broader than that where I really have to give it to like my grandparents and my parents. I think growing up, I had a way different childhood than they did. And I think there's this element of appreciation for that opportunity. For those that don't know, I'm first generation, meaning my parents came from another country, Vietnam, here into the U.S. Um, and basically during the, the Vietnam War. So the, a part of that, is this immigration story from basically uh, a family that had was pretty well off in one country and had to move immediately because of some opposing force that wasn't aligned for a long-term views. And we're seeing it right now with a lot of stuff that's going on in the world. That courage to, to make that leap, that sacrifice in taking that risk and really doing it to build a better life in, a, in, in an environment that's really difficult, right? Not learning a language, you're in 
Philadelphia. Like, what's Norristown? What's <laughs> Conchahokan? What's this, like, what's tomato pie? Like, what, you know? Uh, it's good. It's like, it's really good. But to build a home, build a family, build a business, but also put in the hours. It wasn't easy. And it was one of those things where you just humbly worked, diligently worked. It was just part of our culture. So that hustle mentality was always because there's something to do. Like, if you're done peeling the onions, go break down the boxes. If you're done breaking down the boxes, go peel some shrimp. If you're done peeling the shrimp, there's a Florida mop. Oh, there's a customer on the phone. We all were raised to the restaurant because, quite frankly, our parents didn't have the means or the aptitude to go find help. It wasn't like someone that was going to take care of us. The restaurant was really near where we lived, so we were just going back and forth there. And so that type of upbringing really defines how you view opportunity and risk and and also comes with this deep sense of gratitude of I can't really complain I have all this opportunity I let me just do it in honor of what they did because through that like sacrifice and suffering ultimately was like shielding you as you're the kid they're just your parents you like you get it you're like I'll do anything for my kids they have no idea and we grew up in that way too and it's not until I'm realizing this I'm much older now where I'm looking back on, on what it's like to have gone through that and why it's so unique and special, but also very consistent with many immigration stories here and why I really think like the power of the U.S., it's, it's, it is immigration. It's bringing like really amazing people all over with this dream of building something for yourself. And I am definitely a product of that. And Penn State, too, giving a nod to the university helped me with a bunch of scholarships, too. And I think without that, it would have been more difficult for me post-college on returning the favor. Yeah, I think a lot of that was through the upbringing, the restaurant being there and the lineage of how our parents and grandparents got there. Yeah, what a strong uh, strong foundation you've had and, and credit, as you, you mentioned, to your grandparents and, and parents as well. Is, is the restaurant still open today? Yes, it is. All it's right. like one of two... I think establishments left in the whole shopping center. It's crazy. Oh my God. What's going on I've not been over there for a while, but I got to take a trip. <laughs> there yeah, you go. I, I'm jealous. I haven't been there in a while too. Something about this pandemic, but I yeah, I know we've touched a lot about Penn state. Let's go a little bit deeper. We're going to put you in the lion's den, which is a segment brought to you by our friends at lion's pride. Reminisce about your time at Penn State and remember to visit lions-pride.com and join the Lions Pride loyalty program to start earning rewards on apparel and merchandise. So, Hua, we, I think you've touched upon this, so I don't want to have you reiterate if you don't want to, but the question we usually ask is how has Penn State prepared you for your career and your professional life? And you've already given us some anecdotes, but if there's any other aspects you'd like to build upon, we're happy to hear it. I think one thing I love about Penn State is its size. I know some people shy away from large colleges. I loved it. I mean, coming out from Plymouth meeting, Pennsylvania with Ross, and I haven't seen that many people before, like that many kids <laughs> in, in, in one place. It was phenomenal. And what I loved about it too was there's all these different groups and subgroups you could get into. And you can create community or create bonds in the things that you're into, whether it's philosophy, whether it's Asian club that I was in, or and just like experience college and life together. And so I think that's important. Like actually go and try things out. 
and I did, and I was fortunate with that. And it gave me a much better perspective of what life is like and all the different shades and colors within it. And leaving that and going into New York, it made it easier to be in an even bigger city and just move through it and not be intimidated or overwhelmed because of, oh, there's too many people. Have you seen a tailgate football weekend? <laughs> That's a lot of people. Like, come on. That is. <laughs> you know? So true. Toughest question of the entire podcast. Favorite Penn State memory? That's a tough one, man. I don't know. Maybe it's grabbing a peachy Paterno shake in the middle of the day because you can. No classes are happening. Everyone's doing their thing. And you just walk the campus and being stoned if you want to. Just even with the peachy Paterno and walking around is, you know, laying on Old Main. Like, I think one, was, one thing that was awesome about being a line ambassador is it got a chance to really understand the, the lay of the land. And there's some like, nice little nooks here and there. And I know senior year, I did a bunch of that. I knew this was going to be over soon. And I did a bunch of, let's just take a day on campus, not running anywhere, not doing anything, but just like being in it and like seeing everything happening. And I think that could be pretty solid. Russ, this that is why we have an independent podcast from Penn State. So we can yes. have guests talk, come on and talk about being stoned at Penn State. It's true. Yeah, if we were uh, officially affiliated in any way, we might have to edit that. But here we are. We do what we want. <laughs> so if you want to come and listen to the unedited, real-life Penn State experience, this is the podcast. <laughs> Bringing it to you straight, Lion Legacy. Exactly. Talking about another independent publication, we have a great partnership with the Daily Collegian, where students submit questions to our guests. This week, Caitlin Ramage, a rising senior, wants to know, how was your experience studying abroad? We haven't touched on this yet. And what do you think was the most valuable thing you gained from it? First, tell us where you uh, studied abroad. Yeah, I actually, so I did three study abroads or three international trips. There was two with Shriers and that was to Barcelona and Paris. That was great. And then my study abroad was in Beijing, my, ju my junior, senior year. So 2003, 2004. I, I, I think what's awesome is Penn State's already a global like campus. There's alumni everywhere. But getting the opportunity to go travel and see the world is, is a huge opportunity. And Beijing being entrenched into the existing university. So we actually interacted with other kids that were in school, but just flipped in that way. Penn State has a lot of international students. The food's great. I think eating in other countries is probably by far my favorite thing. And then going and seeing the different arts and buildings and being a tourist and just kind of freaking out a bit that you're like alone, another part of the world, like embodying your own agency on, I am somewhere else. I don't have to be there. And like floating in this space and time for just a moment before going back. I think that's also pretty cool. Excellent. If you could visit with Hua as an 18-year-old freshman entering Penn State some, you know, what, 20-odd years ago, what advice would you share with yourself? Don't be so hard on yourself. It's going to work out. I think growing up, I was very self-motivated in a way. Got to achieve, do this, or do that. Or, I think ultimately, when you get to college, you've already arrived in a, in a bit. 
and you can enjoy it a little bit more instead of trying to say you need to go take this class and get this grade or you need to do this and that. I think ultimately that, that could be a little bit pressing. Yeah. And probably smoke more weed. I don't know. <laughs> like you probably could have d done more there because we have all these amazing concerts come through and shows and probably could have done more of that. Bryce Jordan is probably a jewel. Like, there's probably more stuff I could have saw. I, I, love, I love, love the honesty for sure. Love that honesty. This has been fascinating. First, great to reconnect with you and, and learn about your journey. I think one of the things that we take away from this conversation is you mentioned it takes a village to create change. And you are certainly one of those leaders of change and leading the industry forward and building something. And you mentioned that was part of a reason why you wanted to change from Wall Street. And it's clear to see that from a cannabis industry standpoint, you are part of that change and you're going to take this industry to the next level and the next level after that and carry it forward. So congrats on all your success and appreciate you taking the time with us today. Thank you. It's, this was great. Appreciate having me. Great to hey, see you, buddy. Glad, glad, glad we had a chance to catch up here. I appreciate the opportunity to walk down memory lane a bit. It's given me a little bit of time to reflect here, which I feel like I don't get too much time to. So it's, it's good. Thank you. We'll continue to follow along. And we always end with, we are. Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruda production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.